Hi, I'm Aoife Guy. In this episode of Modern Law, we discuss the work of the Supreme Court of Canada. You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. It's October 6, 2022. As listeners know by now, this show is primarily about the law's ability to keep pace with change, which is why we have guests on, leading legal minds and law practitioners to help us understand a wide range of challenges at the intersection of law and modern society. Many of those changes are driven by technological advances, obviously, but innovation isn't just about tech. Social innovation also lies at the root of why laws evolve, as new ideas meet changing social needs. Which brings us to our Supreme Court of Canada. It's open to debate how much our final arbiter of law effectively influences social change. The fact remains, as former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin said back in 2008, and I quote, to perform their modern role well, judges must be sensitive to a broad range of social concerns. They must possess a keen appreciation of the importance of individual and group interests and rights, and they must be in touch with the society in which they work, understand its values and its tensions. So with that in mind, we're introducing a new regular bonus feature in our Modern Law series called Supreme Court Briefing to keep listeners apprised of the court's work. And so to guide us today, I'm thrilled to have Nadia Effendi on the show. Nadia Effendi is a partner at BLG based out of Toronto and Ottawa, a member of the CBA's Federal Courts Bench and Bar Liaison Committee. She is also the chair of BLG's Appellate Advocacy and Public Law Group. And before joining BLG, Effendi served as a law clerk at the Supreme Court of Canada to then-Justice Michel Bastarache. She's been counsel before the Supreme Court on more than a few occasions and is otherwise what you would call a very attuned court watcher. So thanks for joining us, Nadia. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, thanks for coming. And so uh, let's kick things off talking about the Supreme Court. Uh, We're still obviously in the early days of the new term. Uh, The court has heard a few cases, one today, but uh, the big story is obviously the nomination of Michelle Obonsawin. Any thoughts uh, first on that and uh, her start, uh, the start of her tenure on the bench? Yeah, I mean, I think that as many listeners will know, uh, in August, Prime Minister Trudeau appointed the his, appointed Justice Michelle Obonso in an historical nomination, in my view. Um, she was sworn in very quickly in early September, becoming the first Indigenous person to sit on Canada's high court. And, and her appointment follows another historical appointment that we had uh, in July 2021 with Justice Mahmoud Jamal, who was the first racialized person to to now serve on the courts, uh, on Canada's highest court. And so I would say that Justice Obonsawin, I mean, brings with her a wealth of experience to the Supreme Court. She's fully bilingual, English and French, uh, brings a broad and diverse background. She's practiced in both public and private sector with specialization in mental health, employment, labor, human rights, uh, Indigenous and criminal and privacy law. Uh, on top of it all, she also has a PhD, which she managed to complete while uh, she was on the bench, although she started prior to that. Um, and we know, because she's been quite open about it, that her thesis uh, for her PhD dealt with the GLADU principles. And so I would say that you know she brings with her quite um, a breadth of experience uh, at the court. There's no doubt about it. It, it takes some. Wa- it takes a while sometimes for a new justice to settle in, uh, and um, you know, I'm, I, and there seems to be a lot of attention on her, uh, understandably coming from uh, indigenous communities. Um, 
what are the expectations for her? I mean, is she under any particular pressure? You know what? I would say that each justice that is appointed to the court brings with them their own ex- expertise and sex ex- set of experiences to their role. Um, I think she probably said it best when she said, look, I'm first a judge, and then, you know, I'm a Franco-Ontarian bilingual indigenous person. And, and by that, I think what she was saying basically is, look, I come in impartial, ready to listen to all the cases. But of course, you know, you can't ignore all your past. And, and I think that's why her appointment is so important. Um, obviously, I'm not in her shoes, so she's probably better placed to say, you know, what kind of, of pressure is on her. But, but I would say that, you know, it is really good, frankly, we are moving in the right direction um, by seeing that this court now is starting to reflect Canadian society. And, and um, you know, in addition to that, Justice Obonsoin also restores the court's gender composition, uh, you know, uh, that existed uh, before Justice Isabella retired. So we're now back at four, four female justices and five uh, male justices. So I, I do think that there's probably certain pressures on her, but at the same time, I think she's made it very clear that just coming at this job, like all of her colleagues, candidly, um, you know, ready to, uh, in an impartial way, listen and determine those cases. And with the departure of Michael uh, Moldaver, uh, Moldaver, you know, there are, uh, there have been comments out there about um, his criminal law expertise, any concerns about uh, the the ability of the bench to um, to replace that expertise or to substitute themselves for that expertise. I mean, there's no doubt that Justice Maldaver had deep uh, expertise in criminal law and leaves big shoes to fill at the court. That being said, I mean, there is a wealth of criminal law experience and expertise on the court right now. Uh, Justice Kazir, for instance, taught criminal law at university, as did Justice Martin who also has experience from her time as defense counsel. Uh, We also have Justice Jamal, who, while he was a private lawyer, uh, represented uh, various parties on intervention in several major criminal cases, including representing the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. So those are just a few of the examples, which in my view um, showcases all the criminal experience. So I think cumulatively, there is experience on the bench. Uh, there's no doubt about it in my view. And, and obviously now Justice Obonsoin comes in qualified and brings um, you know, uh, additional knowledge to that collective pool with her relevant experience and expertise in criminal law and the application of the Gladue principle in the contents of mental health. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's a, good, that's a very good point. And, uh, and also the Chief Justice himself uh, has presided over uh, his fair share of criminal trials. Um, so the other big story uh, was the visit to Quebec City uh, for two hearings. Uh, one was the uh, breathalyzer case, uh, uh, the, the, the King versus Pascal Bro. I guess it's the first. Is that the first uh, King versus? Uh, it might <laughs> uh, be, actually. Yeah. <laughs> case heard by the su- Supreme Court. Uh, the second was an interesting constitutional law division of powers case. Uh, Janet Murray Hall versus the Attorney General of Quebec, a challenge against Quebec's uh, ban on owning and growing cannabis plants for personal use. Did anything uh, stand out for you in either of those two cases? Yeah, I mean, let's start with the Bro case. I think it was definitely an interest case, interesting case because there, obviously, as you've mentioned, Eve, the court will have to decide whether police 
must have an approved testing device with them when they order someone to provide a breath sample. And we saw that we had quite an active court at the hearing, you know, um, they definitely were, they appears to have been, you know, through the questions. And obviously, I, I, I don't know what the outcome will be, we'll have to see with the judgment, but there seems to be some resistance to the idea that an accused would have to wait until a device arrives. And there definitely was an openness on the part of the judges to the accused arguments. Um, the court asked question that focused, among other things, on how is a police officer's order to be considered valid if it cannot be followed through with, if there's no device? And how can an individual can commit an offense when, in fact, they would not have been able to comply with the order since the device wasn't there and the test couldn't have been performed forthwith? And so the justices asked a lot of questions about the way the term forthwith ought to be interpreted uh, demonstrating, frankly, a concern that the interpretation of that term is, is tied to the constitutionality of the provision. Um, Justice uh, Kerry Kassanis also expressed discomfort, you know, stating that it, it, it was safe, uh, that it was as if the state or government was benefiting from the ignorance of the individual who didn't know the device wasn't present. Um, there was quite a few interveners. Obviously, the attorney generals in the case we're advocating for flexibility in the interpretation of, of forthwith, as opposed to a more stringent interpretation that might require a police officer to have the device in their possession. And then obviously on the flip side, you had the Quebec Defense Bar highlighting the issue of interpreting the term forthwith in such a way that might suspend an individual's right to counsel and advocating for transparency. In other words, that an individual should be fully informed of the facts of the situation. So I think we had, a, we had an active bench there and it'll be interesting to see um, what outcome the court decides. And what about the uh, cannabis case? You know what, the cannabis case was quite interesting for a couple of reasons. Obviously, um, division of power cases are always <laughs> interesting and, and that's what we had here. You know, we had our basically, um, arguments that were being raised about the constitutionality of the Cannabis Regulation Act of Quebec and whether or not, uh, in fact, it was um, it was invalid uh, since, you know, this falls within the exclusive jurisdiction of, of Parliament as being a criminal matter. And so there, the, the court really questioned counsel on whether uh, the federal act granted a positive or freestanding rights given that the court back in Rothmans, back in 2005, has held, had held that you know, the federal government can't create freestanding rights using its criminal power. So we had here Justice Kazir explain that you know, if, if Murray Hall's argument was to be accepted, then they would have to set aside those previous case law insofar as they explain how federal jurisdiction is essentially prohibitive in nature. And so obviously the AG seemed to be in agreement that criminal law power can't and should create freestanding rights. The justices were also interested in hearing arguments on the pit and substance of the act and teasing it out, how the double aspect doctrine applies, how paramountcy might apply. Um, and you had Justice Brown, who was really interested in, in whether there was frustration of purpose when the federal act defines what is illicit and licit cannabis uh, insofar as, you know, cannabis that is listed under the federal legislation might then be prohibited by provincial legislation. So you really had um, a variety of questions being asked. One interesting thing that was also noted and highlighted by the court was the absence of the Attorney General of Canada, who didn't intervene in this case. 
and you, you had Justice Jamal question what could be inferred from that absence. And obviously, one intervener thought that the reason that was the case was because, you know, the federal act hadn't, wasn't in question there. One thing that struck me, and aside from the substantive legal issue at stake here, Eve, was the issue, more of a procedural issue that took place at the hearing. And I, I would invite counsel who appear for interveners or, or on a regular basis or might appear in the future for interveners to actually listen to this hearing. And the reason I say that is that you had the chief justice and at least one other justice interrupt counsel for interveners on several occasions to remind them of the proper role of interveners and made the point, in fact, at the end of the hearing to clarify that there seemed to be a misunderstanding with respect to intervention and, and stating that interveners have no business referring to the facts or the merit of a case, that their role is simply to bring a different perspective to that of the parties. And he instructed counsel to, in the future, review the criteria for intervention prior to making arguments. So I thought that that was an interesting point yeah, and there was the even a, there was even a there was a veiled threat to that, that they you know if not the court could revise its own correct uh, criteria to uh, to to grant leave to interveners correct correct and you know you'll remember that the court just like last November issued kind of this revised guidelines on intervention so I think that the court is trying to send the signal here to counsel look you really need to stick with the criteria and your role as an intervener you can't go beyond that. And, and I will say that as counsel that appears for intervener, that's a bit challenging sometimes because the court's approach has been at the beginning of the process to grant intervention to virtually anyone that seeks leave to intervene. So there's not a lot of you know, guidance provided by the court at that end. But then it seems when you get to the hearing that the court really is trying to take a harder approach to that and, and making sure that the interveners are sticking to their role and their mandate. I did wonder whether... Because I I know that he did uh, the chief justice sort of admonish admonished uh, these interveners about that, but but a lot of the interveners were attorneys general. So um, do they get a pass for that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just, I, just because I, of who they are. <laughs> yeah, I I I think. Look, I I don't know whether they get a pass. I mean, obviously, they're the attorney generals are constantly before the courts. Um, I think that a lot of them that have experience tend to focus on the legal issues. And, and it may be that, you know, counsel that weren't as familiar with the court or may have been. And I'm not sure, frankly, I don't want to I'm not sure whether some of these counsel it was their first time or not their first time. But I would simply say that I think we really need to be careful. And as as counsel, we're also as interveners to make sure that we're there to help the court. We're not diving into who should win or who should not win. That really isn't the role of an intervener. And sometimes that's tough, right? As we all know, facts is what makes law. So it's difficult sometimes to distinguish from one from the other. But I think that that's really what the caution that the court reminded us of in that case. Yes, definitely. Um, and today, uh, uh, the constitutionality of the Safe Third Country Agreement was heard. Right. And so... Um, another case that, you know, has been on everyone's radar um, will remember that um, in that case stems from that 2004 agreement between Canada and the U.S. known as that safe third party country agreement where the U.S. had been designated as a safe country pursuant to the Immigration and Refugee Protection Scheme. And so as a result, claimants arriving at like a land port of entry to Canada from the U.S. are deemed to be ineligible for refugee protection. And so... 
Um, I mean, it raises really novel issues of how foreign treaty obligation may affect the state's protection of charter right and frankly raises really complex question of administrative law. Um, in fact, it appeared that the hearing today went a bit over what was expected. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes out of that um, decision and, and that case, and particularly as it relates to issues of Section 7 and Section 15 of the Charter. So a few leaves were granted over the summer um, and over the last couple of weeks. Um, I, I thought a lot of them seemed to emerge from criminal law, uh, though there are a couple of exceptions to that. Um, you know, tell us perhaps generally what's on your radar. Were, are, are any of those worthy of note or is there uh, another hearing that you're particularly interested in, uh, in uh, tuning into in the coming weeks? Well, I think I, I think it's important to mention maybe one case, Eve, the one that was actually granted leave for uh, just at the end of September, and that's the Société des Casinos du Québec, and and leave was granted on September 29th, and and that case will be of interest to all the lawyers specializing in labor and employment, particularly those in Quebec, and and that's a case where the the Association des Cadres de la Société des Casinos challenged the constitutionality of the managerial exclusion in Quebec's labor code. Um, after in that case, a casino had objected to their application to repre- represent a group of frontline managers at the casino on the basis that you know the definition of employee under the Canada Labor Code excludes managers. So I think that will be interesting because here the Supreme Court has an opportunity to revisit the interpretation and the scope of Section 2D, that is the freedom of association and the equivalent provision under the Quebec Charter. We know that you know, those kind of cases don't come uh, to the court every day. Um, so, so I do think there'll be quite a bit of interest around that uh, case. It is actually a case that stems from a somewhat length, lengthy legal history. So I invite people to take a look at it. But it had been going on since 2009 in terms of going back to the earlier uh, steps in, in the proceeding. So, so I think it'll be interesting to see how the court deals with you know, its case law as it relates to, we'll remember that uh, the court had dealt with the issue of those provision uh, in the RCMP case and also the, in the Dunmore case back in 2001. So um, I think that this is one that will be on my radar. It's not likely to be heard, I would think, this year, certainly, probably in 2023 at the earliest. Um, I think the other case that we might want to discuss is the case that's being heard next week. That's the Hansman versus Neufeld case. Uh, you'll remember that that's the case that deals with defamation and what is commonly known in, in the legal world as anti-slap. Those are the anti-strategic lawsuit against public participation motions. You got that and, right. <laughs> I had to write that one down, Eve. And so <laughs> that case, again, may have, I think, significant consequences for freedom of expression, affect the defense of fair comment, and, and is likely to shape the factors that court assess in weighing the various competing public interests in the context of those anti-slap application generally. So I, I would say definitely one to watch next week. Um, the other one is uh, one that's being heard in November, uh, the Dean Knight. Um, that one will be of interest to all our colleagues in the tax world. Uh, they always get excited because there's not that many cases in tax. Um, but again, you know, I think it will be an interesting one to be on the watch out for. It deals with the issue of control. Um, so definitely one, I think, that it, that is on, on my radar 
the only other one that I wanted to flag and is not one that's being heard uh, in, uh, you know, very soon, but I, I happened to be looking at the various cases that had been granted leave uh, over the course of the spring and the summer, and, and I noted this one, and it goes back a bit in time. It was granted leave in, on April 14, 2022, but that's the case of Commission Scolaire Francophone des Territoires du Nord-Ouest, and maybe at some other time, Eve, we can talk further about that one, but it deals with language rights. And I think it will be a very interesting uh, case that deals with, you know, education law, language rights stemming out of the Northwest Territories. So I invite people to be on the lookout for that one because it does raise really interesting issues, not only with respect to Section 23 of the Charter, but also your rights to appear in court and be able to, um, you know, make your case in French. So one to be on the lookout for. Okay, that's great. That's a great rundown. Thank you so much, Nadia Fendi from uh, BLG for joining us today. Um, and uh, we'll have you on again soon to update us on future cases and hearings. Thank you so much. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA podcast channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us if you can. If you have the time, it would help us greatly. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear some French, listen to our Droit Moderne podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions of topics that you'd like to hear us discuss here, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBA Matt Mag and on Facebook. Also, check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. And a big, big thank you to our podcast editor extraordinaire, John McGill. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Modern Law. We'll catch you next time.